Kind of looks like gold means business here, doesn't it? $2,006. It's not feeling to me like we're going to get some massive pullback. As Jeffrey Christian likes to say, gold thrives on uncertainty. Hello and welcome back to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli and we have a great show for you here today. An elder statesman of the Canadian mining business, Don Lindsay at the Canadian Mining Symposium in London, England. I asked him about some very burning questions for me, which is the whole green transition strategy, the importance of coal. As I mentioned in the interview with him, we often get a one-sided story with coal. And of course, tech has coal assets. So I asked Don Lindsay, who under his stewardship acquired and developed the coal properties that are in BC. I think it's Red Dog. So I asked him to actually give us a more subtle, fuller picture on gold. I asked him about resource nationalism in the context of the Glencore acquisition attempt. And we saw a ton of you know resource nationalism, including on this program. And I thought he offered actually a pretty persuasive argument as to why we shouldn't be so you know, nationalistic, really, about these resources. And as I've mentioned on previous episodes, as well as in this interview, I mean, there is an irony, of course, in us being nationalistic about resources that exist in Chile that are under their ground. So, but all to say, there is a history, of course, with Falconbridge and Inco. So, you know, it's, it's a complicated matter. So it's a very interesting discussion, and we got a very sophisticated perspective which is what we search for on this program, from Don Lindsay, former president and CEO of Tech, now chairperson at Manulife, and also, I believe, the chair at the Invictus Games. You know, that's Harry and Meghan's territory over there. So he has been brought in, and I was joking with him before, his Rolodex must be expanding because it's not the typical crowd that he was used to. He was saying how he was pretty surprised to get the call. But when he thought about it, he thought maybe it would be a wonderful project. So lots to get to here. As we scan the situation here, I mean, it's pretty interesting what's going on with gold right now, because there aren't many places right now that you can really cheer for, financially speaking. Stocks kind of look like they're breaking down a little bit. It looks like an echo bubble. When you look at the you know market psychology chart, Often there's the big, you know, parabola to the high, and then you see kind of an echo bubble that's a little bit of a lower high. I mean, it kind of feels like the market's rolling over. So stocks, maybe, maybe not, as far as just the general market. Where else are you going to go? Bonds, you know, which look like they're, you know, breathing a sigh of relief at 4.8%. Let's check our bond prices while we're on the subject here. Uh, U.S. 10-year is at 4.84%, so down 0.02. U.K. 10-year gilt down 0.05 at 4.5%, and the Italy 10-year at 4.7%, down 0.13%. So a slight reprieve for bonds here, but really, are we simply seeing a normalization at these higher rates? A kind of, you know, retrace of sorts before going higher? That's kind of how gold feels to me. It's looking really comfortable above $2,000. And when we look at silver, we don't see a breakout there. I mean, silver is trading at $23.36. I mean, I thought we were seeing $25 in the last few months here. So silver has not confirmed. Copper is at $3.65. 
You know, back to this Jeffrey Christian notion, gold likes to trade on uncertainty. And I think with this Middle East situation going on, Israel declaring war on Hamas, you know, all sorts of mixed reactions all over the globe, aircraft carriers being sent over, you know, to the Mediterranean. It's in a pretty intense situation out there. Also, let's look at the price of oil. Maybe to say it's rolling over is too strong of a term. But West Texas Intermediate at $83.09, Brent crude below $90 at $88.51. We're starting to see the spread actually come back a little bit more there too, interestingly. So oil, you could argue, is rolling over. So Dr. Copper, again, $3.65. You look at the markets, not looking great. So where do you hide? As the gold bugs love to say, all roads lead to gold. You know, if we get some big downdraft here on geopolitical concerns, where do you want to be? And this is not financial advice, but I'm just asking, thinking out loud here. I mean, I'll say this. You know, the one other asset that's not looking terrible is Bitcoin. But Bitcoin, you know, as Gareth Soloway likes to say, is still like a teenager here. It's like 12 or 13 years old. It often trades as a risk asset. So right now, it is kind of decorrelating to a certain degree from the NASDAQ, interestingly. However, I'm not sure that's really where you want to be right now. Again, like in terms of things being undervalued, and you just trying to retain your wealth? Are you going to put it in real estate? Right? I mean, where do you go? Where do you hide? How do you preserve your wealth? Are you going to buy bonds? Those people have been smoked. Are you going to buy stocks? Looks edgy. Are you going to buy real estate? Something real? Feels kind of expensive. What is the last kind of solid one could argue, fair value thing that is left. I don't even think it's comic books. I don't think it's trading cards. Like, to me, I don't know where you go. And even cash. Look at the dollar. The U.S. dollar looks like it's rolling over to a certain degree when you look at the USDX. So if that's the case, if everything is kind of on its way down, except gold is kind of perking up, Well, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? And of course, gold's just had a big move, so maybe it's not the time to buy. But like I began this show with, it's looking pretty comfortable. It looks like it means business, doesn't it? So with that, let's take a look at our news stories here. We have some very interesting news stories, some tragic news stories, and continuing many geopolitical stories and more. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on X at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host this podcast and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. Turning to the website, at least 32 people have died and 14 remain missing after a mine fire in Kazakhstan, the Ministry for Emergency Situations said on Saturday. Operator Arcelor Metal Tamir Tau 
The local unit of Luxembourg-based steelmaker ArcelorMittal said 206 of 252 people at the Kostenko mine had been evacuated after what appeared to be a methane blast. It said 18 people had sought medical attention. Kazakh President Kasim Yomart Tokayev, who expressed condolences to the victims' families and declared a national day of mourning on October 29th, ordered his cabinet to stop investment cooperation with ArcelorMittal Temir Tau. The company said it had suspended operation of coal unit mines for 24 hours for gas protection checks. The government and company also confirmed they were working to finalize a deal to nationalize the company, which operates the country's biggest steel mill. And we have a quote from the company, quote, ArcelorMittal can also confirm, as communicated earlier today by the government of Kazakhstan, that the two parties have been in discussions concerning the future of ArcelorMittal Temir Tau and recently signed a preliminary agreement for a transaction that will transfer ownership to the Republic of Kazakhstan. ArcelorMittal is committed to completing this transaction as soon as possible in order to minimize disruption to the greatest extent possible, end quote. Last month, First Deputy Prime Minister Roman Schuyler told reporters that Kazakhstan was in talks with potential investors who could take over the mill. He said the cabinet was unhappy with ArcelorMittal's failure to meet its investment obligations, upgrade equipment, and ensure worker safety after a series of deadly accidents. So bizarrely enough, it looks like they were already trying to nationalize this company. And while that process was going on, it seems like this huge accident occurred. 32 dead, 14 missing. That is a massive amount of people. Continuing on, BlackRock says buy metals companies if you care about climate. So, you know, interestingly, I mean, Don Lindsay was just talking about in this interview how tech needs to separate the coal in order to attract investors. Now, when BlackRock says buy metals, I wonder if they mean all metals. And here's the story, Bloomberg News via mining.com. Investors are missing a big opportunity to profit from the energy transition because they have an outdated view of the metals and mining industry, according to one of the sector's most influential investors. And we have a quote from Evie Hambro, global head of thematic and sector investing at BlackRock, who said in an interview, quote, our view from speaking to our clients and investors at large is that the opportunity within this space has been massively overlooked. If you're focused on sustainability, if you're focused on the energy transition, don't overlook this area. There is a huge value opportunity, end quote. Hambro said the recent changes in the mining industry meant that most investors needed to update their view of the sector. He pointed to a focus on reducing carbon emissions in metals production, a more disciplined approach to spending than in previous booms, and a rapid decrease in the cost of capital as governments throw money at miners amid concerns about supply security. Industry executives, analysts, and specialist investors have for several years been predicting a bull market as the shift to a lower carbon economy drives a wave of demand for the metals needed for electricity grids, electric vehicle batteries, and solar panels. Yet while prices rallied sharply in the rebound from the COVID pandemic, they have stagnated in the past year. Quote, the story isn't about now, the story about what's happening over the next 10 to 15 years, end quote, Hambro said, arguing that the sector is undervalued. He continued, quote, if you wanted to rebuild the copper industry globally, you couldn't do it for the market cap of the copper companies out there today. So I think there's a huge gap in that regard. And finally, he said, quote, we're not saying companies must go out there and build. 
We don't want them to verge away from capital allocation models that have helped rebuild trust within the sector over the last eight to nine years. And another quote, this time from Olivia Markham, people pay premiums for companies that are lower carbon producers. If you look at the U.S. steel industry, which is much lower carbon intensity versus, say, the European steel industry, there's a higher premium that is paid for. If we're just simply stopping burning fossil fuels for the production of energy and continuing to burn them for the production of materials, and we need a lot more materials, then we're not actually going to solve the challenge that we face, said Hambro. I feel like this entire article is kind of a summary of the last two years of discussion here. So you heard it here first. BlackRock is now saying really what we've been discussing here for, I'd say, 24 to 36 months. Continuing on, battery makers hunt for graphite ahead of China controls. So, of course, last week, China announced that they were going to restrict the amount of graphite that they were going to export. And this is Bloomberg News via mining.com. South Korean companies are rushing to buy more graphite from China before export controls on electric vehicle battery ingredient take effect in December. LG Energy Solutions said on an earnings call on Wednesday that it will try and buy more graphite as soon as possible prior to the measures kicking in. POSCO Future, a battery electrode maker, is also making efforts to maintain, quote, the proper levels of stockpiles, end quote, before the December 1st deadline, it said in an emailed response to questions. So, December 1st is only a month away. And again, looking at last week's article, China refines and produces 98% of the world's synthetic graphite. So this is a true stranglehold here. Continuing on, China's Ministry of Commerce said last Friday that it will place some types of graphite under export controls in order to safeguard national security. While the measures don't necessarily mean shipments will be banned, the announcement unnerved EV makers given the country accounts for about 60% of the world's natural graphite production capacity and 90% for the synthetic variety. So it continues, the stranglehold here, Global South continues to restrict the supply of resources. What I call the Achilles heel of the West continues to be targeted. Continuing on, Linus shares jump as Malaysia allows key plant extension. So Malaysia has been threatening Linus for about a year, if memory serves, about the radioactivity that is produced in their uh, refining process. And I remember, I'm always kind of impressed by the politician who said, if the radioactive waste is no big deal, then put it on a ship and take it back to Australia when you're done with it. Let's see what the latest is. Reuters via mining.com. Shares of Linus Rare Earths hit their highest in over a month on Wednesday, extending gains after Malaysia allowed the miner to operate its flagship refinery locally with a variation to the operating license. Shares jumped as much as 5.6%, hitting the highest since September 19th and putting the company on track to sit among the top 10 gainers in the ASX 200 benchmark index. The government of Malaysia said on Tuesday it will allow Linus Malaysia, which had been operating in central Pahang, state since 2012 to import raw materials containing natural radioactive material and process rare earths until March 2026 after a long-running regulatory battle. The license extension comes despite concerns raised in recent years by Malaysia regarding radiation levels from the cracking and leaching operations during raw material processing. Science and Technology Minister Chang Li Kang said Linus will be allowed to import radioactive material 
and continue processing rare earths provided the firm carries out thorium extraction to remove radioactive waste. And finally, we have a quote here from analysts at Macquarie. Quote, Linus has debottlenecked its cracking and leaching following the license update, end quote. So it looks like Linus has done what is needed for Malaysia, at least for the time being. Continuing on, Germany's Schultz said his country is willing to invest in Nigerian gas and minerals. This is Reuters via mining.com. German Chancellor Olaf Schultz said on Sunday his country was willing to invest in gas and critical minerals in Nigeria, Africa's largest oil producer, as he started a two-nation visit to sub-Saharan Africa. This is the third visit to the region by Schultz in two years and comes as conflicts elsewhere highlight the growing importance of an energy-rich region in which Berlin has traditionally had little involvement. And we have a quote from Schultz at a joint briefing with Nigerian President Bola Tinubu in the capital Abuja. And so here's the quote from Schultz. There is a willingness to invest, especially in critical minerals. And he continued, if we are successful, if there is a better chance of exporting the produced gas... It is then the question for German companies to do their private business. And meanwhile, we got this other headline also out of Nigeria. Nigeria seeks to tighten rules to curb raw mineral exports. Let's look at the dates here. So that last article was October 29th. This was on October 24th, Bloomberg News via mining.com. Nigeria plans to tighten rules to reduce the export of raw materials and encourage the shipment of processed products, a move aimed at creating jobs and boosting value of its exports. Now, we've been seeing this for at least a year where these countries want to process. They don't want to just deliver the raw commodities anymore. They want to process, refine, build the batteries, whatever else. And so let's continue here. Della Aleki, the Minister for Solid Minerals, said in an interview, quote, you can't take our minerals away without adding value locally, which means you must start a factory to produce something that is associated with the mineral that you are taking out. So the global south wants in. And what that means, I think, is the west is not going to be as profitable. That seems to be an obvious conclusion. If you disagree, feel free to leave a comment. And also in Africa, Burkina Faso targets bigger royalties as gold production drops. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. Burkina Faso has revised its mining code to enable it to take more in royalties in boom times after gold production fell. The West African nation increased the minimum royalty rate for spot price above $1,500 an ounce to 6% from 5%, the military government said in a decree seen by Bloomberg. The rate will rise to 6.5% for spot higher than $1,700 to $2,000 and further to 7%. For spot above $2,000, it said. Gold output in one of Africa's biggest producers dropped 13% to 58.2 tons in 2022. According to government data, at least five mines closed down amid deteriorating security, followed by two coups that year. A spokesman for Endeavor Mining, Burkina Faso's largest gold producer, declined to comment. And finally, tech shares are back where they started before Glencore offer Bloomberg News via mining.com. Tech Resources has come full circle after a tumultuous seven months kicked off by an unsolicited takeover offer from Glencore that sent the Canadian firm's stock soaring. Its shares are now back where they began. Tech stock has traded largely range-bound for months as investors awaited the outcome of a plan to split out its coal business while metal prices broadly have come under pressure. But a 9.1% plunge on Tuesday after the company increased the cost estimate for its flagship copper project by an additional $600 million, erased the last of gains since Glencore's $23 billion bid was made public 
in April. And we're going to learn a lot more about the Glencore tech deal in our feature content here coming up with Don Lindsay, chairman of Manulife. Those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, let's start with precious metals. Gold is trading at $2,006.70 per ounce. That is $33 higher than last week. Silver is trading at $23.33 per ounce. That is $0.29 cents higher than last week. Platinum is trading at $932 per ounce. That is $36 higher than last week. And palladium is trading at $1,125.16 per ounce. That is $4 lower than last week. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is $0.09 higher at $3.65 per pound. Iron ore is unchanged at $118.70 per metric ton. Aluminum is $0.04 higher at $1.03 per pound. Lead is a penny higher at 98 cents per pound. Nickel continues to fall at $8.23 per pound. That is 12 cents lower than last week. Tin is 3 cents lower at $11.30 per pound. Cobalt is unchanged at $15.16 per pound. Lithium is lower at $22.35 per kilogram. That is a dollar and nine cents lower than last week and flirting with recent lows here. Uranium is at $73 per pound. That is $4 higher than last week and reclaiming its uptrend here after a couple of weeks at $69. And zinc is two cents higher at $1.12 per pound. Zooming out, it seems that precious metals have wind in their sails, particularly gold and kind of a mixed bag on industrial metals, generally edging lower, with strong exception being uranium, maybe zinc, a couple of cents higher here, and aluminum, four cents higher, and copper, nine cents higher. So a bit of a mixed bag with industrial metals and precious metals, particularly gold, higher. And those are your metal prices. Coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome Don Lindsay, former president and CEO of Tech Resources, where he had the helm for 17 years. Now he is chair at Manulife, but he is still able to talk in kind of more big picture terms about the company, although not in specifics, but we got what we needed here in this Really interesting discussion with Don Lindsay at the Canadian Mining Symposium in London. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Well, I'm very pleased to have Don Lindsay here. He is the chairman of Manulife. But many of you will know him as the former CEO and president of Tech Resources, where he spent 17 years at the helm there. And so he is no longer with Tech Resources. I'll let him explain that. So Don, welcome to the Canadian Mining Symposium. Good to be here. Thank you for the invitation. It's great to have you. To begin this conversation, I thought 
You know, the kind of the elephant in the room when people hear tech resources was the drama that happened this year with Glencore and the whole attempt to take over the company, the splitting. So could you speak to us a little bit just about that whole drama as far as you can uh, from where you are right now? Sure, I'll, I'll do my best within the context of the limitations that I, that I have. I, I should say that uh, I am no longer with tech as of May 31st. Uh, I'm in the midst of my gardening leave, so I'm not allowed to accept any position in the mining industry until next quarter, and I certainly don't speak for tech. Jonathan Price is my successor as CEO, Red Conger is president. They're going to do a fantastic job. Uh, they, I worked with them closely, and so I have full faith in, in that team, and they're going to generate a lot of value in uh, the the weeks, months, and years ahead. And Jonathan's been quite public lately that they're getting close to announcing the separation of coal from metals, which is something that we've been looking at for, for quite some time. So what I can do is offer a perspective, sort of more big picture on, on what's going on and what's driving the deal. And I do take some satisfaction that apparently what we built over those years is, is deemed to be valuable by other people and they want to buy it, so, so good for them. One of the core issues is that in this age of decarbonization, over $60 trillion of assets under management have some sort of protocols internally to not invest in anything related to coal. And they don't uh, distinguish between the good coal and the bad coal. You know, steelmaking coal, of course, is absolutely vital for decarbonization, but they don't care the word coal is in there. So, And that limits the valuation multiple that you're going to get on the whole company. So tech, for some time over the last few years, the multiple compacted, and there we were building QB2, where the opening ceremonies is coming up, October 24th, coming soon, a whole bunch of us are going down to Chile uh, next week. So QB2 would come online, and if it were owned by Freeport, it would trade at seven times EBITDA. If it's owned by tech, it would trade at three. So you're literally leaving billions and billions and billions of market value on the table if you kept the company in that structure. So it became imperative to split the coal from the metals. Now, uh, that, that was in the planning for some time. It's a, a lot more complicated than it looks. There's many different ways to do it uh, that, that some are perceived to be more valuable than others. Um, but in the, in the same time, the assets that we built are, are very valuable to others who may have declining resources. We shifted our strategy some time ago because tech was one of the very first companies to uh, be paying carbon tax. We started paying carbon tax in 2008. At one stage, one year, we were the second largest payer of carbon tax in the world because nobody else was paying it yet. But that taught us you know, all the different things, internal investment decisions to, to build carbon into your thinking. And we shifted our strategy to become a copper growth company. And now, I shouldn't say we because that's not me anymore, but, but now tech has seven copper growth projects uh, coming in the next few years, four of which could be permitted in 15 to 18 months. Uh, Zephyrnel just got permitted recently. So tech has a growing profile. Others, I won't name each company individually, others have a depleting profile. And so the copper was particularly interesting. You think about well, what is decarbonization is all about electrification, which is all about copper, right? So, so that, that's what it is. But what a lot of people don't realize is just how valuable the coal is. And the steelmaking coal business has generated... $35 billion of EBITDA since uh, I bought it in 2008. And uh, it's only going to get better because that same investment limitations with all these institutions mean there's less capital available for supply. So steel making coal supply is going to go down. But people have now realized that to make steel with hydrogen is awfully difficult and is not going to happen 
for a long time, like we're talking a couple of decades. And so the customers, and you've seen this in the papers, Nippon, JSW, POSCO, uh, other investments, Pierre Lassonde, you know, they all say, God, that business is going to have, a, the next 10 years is going to be much better than the last 10 years, and the last 10 years is pretty good. So all of a sudden, it becomes uh, very appealing. And even in the last 18 months, and this is really uh, a key factor, the long-term average coal price has probably increased by 70 to $80 a tonne because BHP has uh, reduced their capital allocated to the business because Queensland put super royalties on it. Anglo's had all sorts of safety issues. Glencore's resources are, are depleting. Tech's not going to business. So those are the four major producers. Then if someone has a property, take Gina Reinhardt in Canada, she's got money, but she can't get a permit. So the, the supply's not gonna be there, but meanwhile, the globe's population is still growing, demand for steel going up, and it's still going to be blast furnaces, particularly in China. So that business is looking incredibly valuable, and that's why behind the scenes, Jonathan and the team are, uh, are so busy these days. But anyway, that's some of the, the themes behind what's going on. And I don't know what's going to happen. I cannot be an insider at this stage of my life. I need to be able to you know, lighten up on the portfolio a bit. Uh, so. That's a work in progress for you. And I'm glad you brought up coal, which I want to get to in a second, because I think coal is one of those stories that it's usually talked about one way, which is how dirty coal is and how you know terrible coal is. And I want to get there in a second. But before we do, I'd also like to discuss the reaction that occurred with this whole, just to finalize the whole kind of Glencore's tech saga, the whole resource nationalism aspect of it, because what you saw and I admit I felt it myself as a Canadian, this sort of the sense of we can't let another Inco go. We can't let another one of these major, you know, Canadian institutions of mining, so to speak, disappear and be sold off. But as we were discussing in our preparation for this, it's maybe not as simple as it sounds, this whole resource nationalism debate. And finally, as Mark Bristow was pointing out, the CEO of Barrick, if we start protecting our assets in a kind of nationalistic way, what happens when we're going around the world and we're trying to acquire assets? So could you just speak about the whole, the complexities, I guess, of the whole resource nationalism issue? Yeah, there are clearly two sides to the issue. I'll go back to uh, 2006 and the nickel wars uh, when INCO was going down and, and Falkenbridge. Um, obviously, I tried to get INCO. The government of the day actually assisted the foreign companies, CBRD, now Valet, and they were allowed to meet, and, and even though there was a golden share in Brazil that had the control of the company, whereas the government refused to meet with tech. And that was the, the thinking of that government at that time. But when Valley won Inco, Extrata, which is now Glencore, won Falcon Ridge Rio Tinto got Alcan, and you know, after that consolidation phase, all of a sudden people realized the head offices are gone. And head offices make a huge difference. I mean, even as the governments, both federal and provincial, uh, came to tech side in, the, in the, this recent skirmish. Actually, Glencore has more Canadian employees than tech does by quite a margin because they own Falconbridge, right? And uh, tech's critical minerals, there are some in Canada with Highland Valley Copper, but they're really in uh, Chile, Peru, Alaska, and they're not in Canada. So what's Canadian? What's really Canadian is the coal, because that's for sure Canadian, and the head office. And the head office, I mean, tech, was a very strong co corporate citizen and you know gave a lot back to the community, and so you don't want to lose that. 
But we did. We lost all sorts of head offices in that period, 2006, 2008. I personally think it's a mistake. I'm a very proud Canadian, very patriotic. And I, you have to have you know, some strong national champions, and that's what I was trying to build at Tech that, the whole time, and I think it's perceived that way. But when you get into the details, Glencore does have more assets in Canada and employees in Canada than Tech does. Interesting. So it's almost like for you, a lot of the focus is on the the head offices. Oddly, and I, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I think the sentiment, the emotion comes from, for whatever reason, I think the resources in the ground to a certain degree. Do you agree with that? Well, I, back to your initial point, like if we restrict in Canada, what's Chile, Peru, I mean, Australia, who, who knows where, right? And look what tech's doing. Tech's just invested, you know, 15 years and billions of dollars to build one of the world's largest copper mines that will be around 100 years and will triple in size over the course of the next 10 years, right? So we wouldn't be allowed to do that. We, and that, that's very limiting to building a great company. So, you know, I think you, you have to, I mean, the mining is as international a business as there is, right? And one of the reasons we all love the business is we, we see the world. One of my classmates from mining engineering at Queen's, Gord Bell, some of you probably know him. I remember one time I was in Ouagadougou, right? And uh, I was uh, waiting for my luggage or something, and there was Gord Bell. And we said hello to each other as if nothing had happened. We went to school in Kingston at Queens, you know, and there was no surprise. And I'll see you in Cape Town. You know? it's, we live on the globe. It's fantastic, right? And so I think we have to think of the industry uh, really that way. Indeed. And like, as I was thinking at an earlier time, like, are we being nationalistic over resources that are in another country? You know, I mean, and there, there is an irony in that. Going to coal. As I was saying earlier, you know, coal is often discussed in this very kind of narrow purview, shall we say, of, again, and within the environmental context, and it's a legitimate discussion, but it seems like we're often leaving out the importance of coal and what it's doing. So just as far as, you know, someone who helped, I guess, develop, if not bring on the coal uh, side when you're with tech, could you just speak about coal a little more and maybe help illuminate and bring more light to that story beyond, say, what we often hear? Yeah, so I speak to steel-making coal, and uh, that, you know, 99% of Tech's coal is uh, for making steel. And, you know, while there are other technologies to make steel, electric arc furnace, of course, been around for a long time. A large proportion of the U.S. steel industry is that. But there's a mature industrial base there with lots of scrap available. Although, interestingly, the metallics, as they call it, have been stable at about 72 million tons for 20 years. But in other countries where people think electric arc furnace might be the way to go, they don't have that mature industrial base from which you, you generate scrap to, to make a lot of steel. So they're still going to use blast furnaces. And hydrogen is not going to come for, for quite some time. So now you think about what is the role that steel plays in the economy? Everything. I mean, everything you can think of. Like, uh, and, you know, you want to decarbonize wind turbines are nine times more steel-intensive per unit power than traditional energy generation. Nine times more. You've got to make it out of steel. Frankly, if you're going to put the wind turbine in the ocean, you better galvanize it with zinc, and it's filled with copper wiring. That's, I mean, that's, that's what a wind turbine is. Solar energy is three times as steel-intensive. So you cannot do it without steel. What you need to do, though, is make the steel with the, the lowest footprint you can. And there's all sorts of efficiency happening. And then the quality of coal is very, very important to that. And uh, Tex Coal in British Columbia... For every ton of steel made, it's between 5 and 30% lower emissions 
than U.S. coal or Australian coal. So that's important. And over time, I think you'll see pricing premiums develop for that sort of stuff. But, you know, people sometimes want to wish it away and think we can do without steel, but we really can't. And think about, think about how the, the global economy is made up. There are about a billion people in Western society, like Canada, U.S., Australia, and Western Europe, that live a very privileged life. And then there's 7 billion people that live a, a, a much, much, much lower quality of life. And they want to improve their lives. It's totally normal. Totally, and should, they should have the right to do that. They're going to need energy. They're going to need steel. They're going to need all the critical minerals you can think. And who are we to deny them? We, well, we are. Uh, but that, that's, these are the societal trade-offs that are taking place right now. I'm not saying one's right or one's wrong, but we should be aware that uh, for uh, all those people in emerging economies to be lifted out of poverty, steel is the core to that. All the infrastructure they will need, it's all steel. And just shifting over to the green strategy then, I kind of wonder to myself sometimes if it's kind of misplaced this idea that we're going to you know, save the environment and improve the world by digging up every last bit of metal in the Earth's crust in order to create a new infrastructure. And I sort of put that to you provocatively in the sense to ask you, what is your sense and your view on the green strategy and I guess just as a kind of follow-up, like, and, and how, how is the government, say, the Canadian, and I guess you could just expand it to governments in the West in general, how are they doing in regard to the green strategy, just from your personal point of view? Okay, well, there's two or three parts to that question, but the first thing I'd say is, look, the whole green strategy, green movement, is all about us reducing our footprint. And we should reduce our footprint. Let's just look around at what we do, right? And the world's chosen carbon as the tool to help us reduce the, the footprint. Whether that will have an effect on the climate, whether we're successful in, in the, the one and a half degrees, all stuff, we'll see. But uh, you know, by broadly adopting carbon as the mechanism and limiting carbon to reduce our footprint, that's achieving a good thing, reducing the footprint. Now, in order to do that, we need a lot of critical minerals. So it is, we have seen an about face, as was said in the opening comments, uh, uh, governments, including the same ministers in the same portfolios, completely did a 180 on their perception of mining and minerals and how, how um, we do it. Now, that's the policy statements. Will that actually flow into approvals and permits and then investment that follows? I'm a bit cautious on that because I... I think the same individuals, they may say the right things, but will they actually be able to do it? I'm not so sure. But, you know, in the end, collectively as a society, we've got to reduce our footprint. So I'm fully supportive. And we have a lot of mining executives in this room. As someone that's built a company or helped build a company among many people, but you did help lead it for 17 years at Tech, what advice do you have for people in what is often called a very difficult business? What kind of advice do you have for people, say exploration companies, just trying to get you know, the financing they need to survive the next quarter, really? What kind of advice do you have for people? Well, look, it's a tough business. We're, we're known as a deep cyclical because the cycles are getting more and more volatile. The highs are higher, the lows are lower, and the whole sine wave is compressed. It happens fast. So whether you're in junior exploration or whether you're operating a, you know, a large integrated company, you have to uh, have the mindset and the decision-making to be able to withstand those, those cycles. And I, I wrote a few of them. Uh, and actually, in our business, because steel-making coal is the most volatile of 
of all the commodities, that then drives you know the cycle and the share price. And there's not much you can do about all that. So I think uh, persistence, like you know endurance. I look at we're opening QB2 on October 24th. That took 15 years. Now we didn't think it was going to take 15 years when I first bought uh, Ore Resources. And by the way, the story there is we knew about eight deep drill holes that nobody else knew about. Really, like with Kaiwasi next door, ore resources in QB should have been bought by Extrata and Anglo. But they were busy fighting with each other. We were able to sneak in under there. We knew about the eight deep drill holes. We didn't know it was going to become 8 billion or 10 billion tons, one of the largest resources in the world. But that's mining. Like, like the mining industry, and particularly the exploration industry, it's all about a license to dream, right? We're always dreaming the next drill hole is going to come in big. You know, copper prices going to the moon, as, as Robert would say. You know, and, uh, and that's the thrill of it. That's why, why it's so much fun. And uh, we go to conferences so we can see our friends. That's basically what it is. So. Excellent. Don Lindsay, thank you for joining us and opening the festivities here at Great. the Canadian Mining Symposium. Everybody enjoy the symposium. Good to be here. pays to talk to an expert and I found the discussion on I guess coal but also resource nationalism to be of particular interest there the whole thing was interesting so a big thank you to Don Lindsay for appearing at our flagship conference there in London England a couple of weeks ago if you want to help out the podcast please leave us a review in the Apple podcast directory share it with your friends and until next week take care